The only three species at the moment that we know to definitely be able to do this are humans, chimpanzees, and you know, there's potentially other great apes, but chimpanzees definitely, and Kia. This is Parsing Science, the unpublished stories behind the world's most compelling science, as told by the researchers themselves. I'm Doug Lay. And I'm Ryan Watkins. Today in episode 74 of Parsing Science, we'll talk with Amalia Bastos from the University of Auckland in New Zealand. She'll discuss her research demonstrating that Kia parrots can make predictions based on probabilities and use physical and social information to adjust those predictions, just as humans do. Here's Amalia Bastos. Hi, I'm Amalia Bastos. I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Auckland. I'm actually originally from Brazil, so my first language is Brazilian Portuguese. Um, I sort of grew up in Brazil, spent my entire childhood and teenage years there. I had a, so I had a fairly unusual childhood. I was surrounded by animals and um, I used to adopt animals sometimes without my parents' consent. I once rocked up um, to the house and told my mom we'd get three turtles and she was like, oh, okay, that sounds fine. And the next day a van rocks up and like these three ginormous tor- tortoises and turtles uh, happened to be in the van. This is, this is, you know, we lived in an apartment, so they had to be put somewhere in the open space of the apartment, but they've always been very supportive. So I ended up with a small zoo. Um, and when you live that closely with animals, you realize how smart they are because you get to observe all the clever things that they do. Um, so yeah, animal intelligence fascinated me from very early on. I studied at a British school, which is why I learned English as a second language. Um, and from a very young age, I knew I wanted to do something in science. Originally, I thought I was going to do um, paleontology, but then I realized you'd find human bones alongside dinosaur bones. I went, nah, that's a bit, that's a bit too much for me. So I <laughs> changed my mind and uh, went with more alive animals. And I wanted to study abroad. I thought Oxford has a really nice uh, curriculum when it comes to biology because they don't force you to do a bunch of things that aren't necessarily your interests. And I already knew that I wanted to go into animal cognition. So I decided to go there. Um, It's quite a tough process getting in, but um, luckily I scraped through somehow. And yeah, got my science degree there. So as an undergraduate, and then in my second, like two and a half years into my course, I saw an advertisement for a PhD in Auckland and I applied. Yeah, I basically told my now supervisor I was applying way ahead of time and he'd have to wait for me if he were to accept my um <laughs> uh my off my um my application and yeah he was fine with that so basically waited something like a year before I could finish up my degree in the UK and fly over to New Zealand. Amalia researches a unique species of parrot found only in New Zealand called Kia after a Maori word which imitates the sound of their call. Separated by about 56 million years of evolution from other parrots like macaws, they're the world's only alpine, or mountain-nesting, parrot. So we began our conversation by asking Amalia about what Kia are like. Kia are fully green parrots. They only have some color on their tails and on their wings. So on their tails, they have some blue, and on the wings, they have um, orange under the wings and blue on their flight feathers, which are the ones that are really only shown when they're flying. And they actually only live in the South Island of New Zealand. New Zealand is divided into two, two islands, the North Island and the South Island and they only exist in the South Island. Um, The University of Auckland 
um, is actually located in the North Island. So when I'm working with a key, I have to fly down here and I'm based out um, in the South Island for that. So that's a few months of the year. But also they have a very, very long beak for a parrot, which is why some people, when they walk past the aviary, ask me if they're birds of prey. They're not birds of prey. They just have very long beaks. And they have those beaks specifically so that they can be very flexible in what they eat. So they're, they're true omnivores. They will eat anything they can get their beaks on because the environment they live in is really harsh. So they can't really find food that easily. So they have to be prepared to dig into soil or eat small mammals or small birds or whatever really happens to come along their way, they will, they will eat it. Amalia and her team carried out their experiment in Christchurch, New Zealand at the Willow Bank Wildlife Reserve. Birds there routinely participate in research as part of their enrichment, which helps maintain cognitive fitness, which could otherwise fade in captivity. Amalia tells us next about Willowbank and the reserve as the setting for their study. We have a large aviary, um, several meters, and you can walk through it. It's a walkthrough aviary at uh, Willowbank Wildlife Reserve. So at the zoo, you walk through it. The visitors walk through it as well. Some of the birds are from the wild from quite a while ago. Our, our oldest bird in the aviary is 26 years old. And he's from the wild back in the day when they were trying to get Kia in the wild to just, you know, breed them in captivity because they went through a huge, well, I can talk about that later, but they, they, they were very endangered because people were killing them because they were uh, attacking sheep. And um, some of them were born in Willowbank. Um, so we have a breeding pair and most of them in there are siblings from that breeding pair. And one of them was actually rescued because she tried to stick her beak in a trap in the wild and then the top of her beak got snapped straight off. So she doesn't have the upper bill, um, but she's doing fairly well in captivity. But over the aviary, every bird has their specific location where they work. So birds know where their work location is and will only come and work with you on that spot. And they also know not to interrupt other birds. So it's very easy to work them sort of without removing them from the aviary. So we don't have to stress the birds in that way. And once the bird is down to the platform, which is a little metal tray, we put a w wooden board on one edge of the tray and that wooden board has plexiglass sort of uh, vertically on the front of it. And that's what sort of separates us and our hands from the birds. Because if we don't have that, they will make their choices before we're ready. You know, they'll just sort of jump on it and touch a hand and be like this one, but we're not, the, the trial hasn't ended yet. So we, uh, we can't have them make their choices before we're done. So we have a plexiglass to separate us. And in this particular test, we have two jars both have orange and black tokens. So they're just like clothes pegs that we use. We picked orange and black more more by chance than anything else. But once we had picked those colors and we made sure that the orange was unrewarding just because it's a color that's, you know, naturally shown in the species and might have might have some sort of signal aspect to it that we're not sure of yet. So we wanted to make sure that that's unrewarding in case it is a sexual signal. So the black ones can always be exchanged for a food reward and the orange ones have no value. So if they bring back an orange one, we just sort of discard it or put it away and we don't give them anything for it. And so one person is going to pick um, from a jar with one hand, the birds can't see what they chose. And from the with the other hand as well, the birds can't see what they chose. And then the birds are given the option to pick between both hands. And the two hands can be presented either in parallel um, or they can be crossed over. So we don't get birds just choosing the side of the jar that they want, etc. They actually have to pay attention to where the hands are going. Kia are incredibly charismatic birds with a voracious curiosity and even a sense of humor. In fact, just like how kids playing and laughter makes other kids want to play more, the same is true for Kia as well. Researchers have found out that a warbling play call that they make coaxes other Kia within earshot into a playful frenzy. 
So Ryan and I were eager for Amalia to describe the personalities of the six birds in her study. They all have very different personalities and we get to like sort of learn what each bird is like when we work with them. The first thing that my volunteers and mentees have to learn is, you know, how to work with each individual bird because it's not, you know, a one approach fits all. Yeah, they're all they're all very, very different. I mean, some birds are very calm, very patient, like Blofeld in the study. He's the um, James Bond villain. They're all mostly named after villains. And he's a very sweet bird. So he's a beginner bird. Whenever I have someone new at the Avery working with a Kia, he's the first one that they work with because there's no way he's going to bite you. There's no way he's going to do anything. At most, he'll be slightly scared of you and run away. And then there's the more difficult birds. Taz in the study, he sort of barters on whether he wants to work or not. So we work by calling them down to their platforms. And once they land, they get food. Taz will sometimes not come down unless you put out a sufficient amount of food pellets on the platform, which he will consider. And then if it's enough for him that particular day, he'll come down and work with you. And then there's Loki, who's also in the study. And he's, he's the more active one and the more impatient one. So he actually gets pretty fed up if you take a long time to conduct a trial. You can tell because he starts sort of chewing on his platform and shaking the plexiglass. He gets pretty frustrated with you. So you need to give him his full attention. Otherwise, <laughs> he's quite angry. So Blofeld, um, he's there. He's there for the participation prize. You know, he's, he tries really hard, but he's not, not the smartest of the bunch. And definitely Loki and Taz are probably the two smartest birds we have in the Avery. We had one called Cheeky as well, who was very smart, but he's now on sabbatical to another zoo. So we won't see him for a while. But yeah, like there's definitely differences in intelligence, which is super interesting because most of them are siblings. So Taz, Loki, Blofeld, um, they're, they're all siblings. And yet there's like huge differences in intelligence. Um, so it's interesting. We have a fairly controlled group in that sense. While research since the 1980s has shown that human infants can apply probabilities in their decision-making, very few non-human animals are able to do so. So Amalia and her team carried out three experiments to determine if Kia might have a similar understanding of statistical probability and integrate social and physical information into their predictions. Here's what Amalia had to say about what testing for the capacity for using probability involves. So yeah, we were interested to see whether Kia could A, use probability to make their statistical inferences, which means actually use the likelihood of sampling a rewarding or unrewarding token, an object that they could exchange for food or an object that was worthless, and not just simply use uh, rules such as picking a jar that has the most rewarding or avoiding the jar that has the most unrewarding tokens. And we were interested as well in whether they could combine that information from probability with either physical or social information. Humans are very, very good at what we call statistical inference. What it means is that if I put my hand in a jar full of blue candies and a few yellow candies, and I show you a closed fist and I ask you what is in my hand, you should tell me that it's a blue candy because the probability of me getting a blue candy is much higher than a yellow candy. Having said that, animals have not been shown to be as good at that in the past. And the reason for this is that a lot of animals, including, for example, capuchin monkeys, they use simpler strategies to solve that problem. So capuchin monkeys, if they have to choose between hands that have sampled from two jars, they will just avoid the jar with the most negative items, so the, the most unrewarding items. And that doesn't show true understanding of probability because... If both jars have the same amount of negative items, one will still be more likely to yield a rewarding item than the other, regardless of how many negative items are in the two jars. 
great, the great apes can do this. They have passed this task. And now for the first time, we've shown this outside of mammals in the Kia. So the only three species at the moment that we know to definitely be able to do this are humans, chimpanzees, and you know, there's potentially other great apes, but chimpanzees definitely, and Kia. To date, most Kia research is focused on their problem-solving skills, but Amalia's study set out to determine whether Kia can use statistical inference to make decisions, namely by way of their drawing conclusions about a population from a sample. As statistical inference is distinct from associative learning, such as merely preferring a population with the greatest number of overall rewards, we asked Amalia to describe how she and her team went about testing the Kia's statistical reasoning ability. We'll hear what she had to say after this short break. This episode is brought to you by Altmetric. At Altmetric, we help researchers track and analyze the online activity around scholarly research outputs. And if you like passing science, you may also enjoy our podcast series, The Altmetric Podcast. Join me, Lucy Goodchild, as we explore the science stories that are being discussed the most online so you can find out why. You can find our show on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Now, back to passing science. Here again is Amalia Bastos. There's three basic signatures of statistical inference. There's actually more, but there's three that we wanted to explore. The first one is that children and infants can use the actual probability or the likelihood of an event occurring to make their judgments. They don't just use simpler associative strategies. The second one is that they can combine information from probabilities with physical constraints. So if there's a barrier, for example, that changes which um, objects can and cannot be sampled, they can adapt to that. And the third one is that they can take social biases into account as well. So if someone shows a preference for one kind of object, then that means they're more likely to sample that object if they're not blind to their own sampling. And the way they do that with very small children and with infants is looking time. So they'll look at the event that is surprising. That's not what they expected. Longer than they look at an event that's predictable, that an event that they definitely know is likely. But with birds, looking time doesn't work so well because they can use one side of their brains and use one eye or the other eye. And they're not necessarily looking face on to things when they're looking. So it's quite difficult to measure. And it's also a very behavioral measure that you'd have to get colders for. And, you know, they don't always agree. Anyway, <laughs> there's many reasons not to use that in birds. So what we did instead is we had jars with barriers down the middle of the jars. And even though both jars had the same number of black and orange tokens throughout, disconsidering the barrier, the barrier separated the populations in such a way that one jar was more likely to yield the rewarding black token than the other one. And so in one condition, we equated the number of positives above the barrier. And in the other, we equated the number of negative items above the barrier. And so if the bird could use actual frequencies, they should pass at both of these conditions, which the vast majority of the birds did. So what we wanted to do there is equalize all the birds' performance before they moved on to the next task. The nice thing about continuing to give this training, especially throughout experiment one, is that it doesn't really matter which strategy the bird is using as long as it passes. So we're not, um, in a way, we're just encouraging whatever strategy the bird decided to use. So if the bird were using a simpler associative strategy in the first condition, for example, they would get, say, another 10 blocks of that condition, and they, that would just continue to reinforce the strategy that they had chosen because any of the three strategies, two associative learning ones and the actual probability, would have led to the right answer. So what we wanted to do that is make sure that all the birds were really good at condition one, and then we put them all into condition two at the same sort of level. And that not only tells us which, which um, strategy they prefer naturally because that's what they would have been 
you know, reinforcing themselves to do over the past several blocks when we get to the next condition. But also it tells us um, that they're fairly consistent. And so they understand the problem at that level. And now we can, you know, ramp it up and make it a little bit more difficult. Until Kia, great apes were the only non-human species which have been found capable of using relative numbers of items within and between populations to make predictions. This form of statistical inference follows Weber's law, which states that the ability to discern between two sets of objects varies as a function of the ratio of the sizes of the two sets compared, independent of the absolute number of objects in each set. For example, if an animal is able to discriminate 5 objects from 10, then they should also be able to discriminate 10 objects from 50. As Amalia and her team's project emulated the methods used in a 2014 study which identified this ability in apes, Doug and I were interested in hearing what led her to choose to do so. So the the evidence from the great apes comes from um, statistical inference as well. We know that chimpanzees, they can integrate uh, social biases with probability information, which means they know when someone prefers a type of item to another, and then they sort of choose according to people's preferences. So because the evidence in the great apes is so strong, we thought that it would be a good sort of good strategy to apply to the birds as well. It's always good to sort of do something that has been done in other species so you can compare very clearly across species. Whereas if we keep designing and developing new methods at every paper and at every turn, then it becomes very difficult to compare. I mean, that's that's cool as well, and I love designing new stuff, but at the same time, it doesn't really help us compare intelligence across species in a fair way. But also, we'd observed some behaviors in the Kia that suggest that, you know, they can definitely think about things that they can't directly see, so the sampling aspect of the experiment would likely work. And they also interact with us in ways that suggest that they understand our social cues and where we're directing our attention. And so um, it seemed like, you know, there was there was a probability that they'd be able to solve that. But it took us a long time to get them to actually do this experiment because hands are actually very, hands are not intuitive to birds, right? So birds don't have hands, they don't know how that works. Hands hold things and they're not visible while we're holding them is, is really quite alien to species that don't have hands. Um, because if you hold something in your beak as a bird, it's most likely visible unless you've already kind of partially ingested it, in which case you probably don't want it from someone else anymore. <laughs> um, and so to train them to track hands was actually the hardest part of the study. It took us two years to figure out a methodology where we were actually asking the birds to track hands in a way that they understood and then they started understanding what hands were doing. So the idea that there's, you know, body parts that can conceal things whilst carrying them can be can be a difficult one to to yeah explain to get across. So what you have to do is actually show them food in one hand, food in the other hand. Then they have to pick which hand has food. Then you start doing that with the food hidden. So, you know, you hide the food in your hand. They have to pick which hand has food. And then you have to show them that if they continue to touch the hand as the hand moves, the hand continues to exist and the food continues to exist in the hand. And um, that's how they learn to hand track. And then you can sort of start, you know, switching the food, for example, for tokens. We didn't want to use food in the experiment because, you know, there's older cues that we couldn't properly control for, so it makes more sense to just use wooden pegs of different colors. One condition in the first experiment tested whether Kia could make sampling predictions using relative rather than absolute quantities. A second condition tested if the Kia were expressing their preference merely based on which jar had the greatest absolute quantity of rewarding tokens, rather than just the jar containing the greatest proportion of rewarding tokens. Ryan and I were curious what led Amalia and her team to develop a third condition, which sought to control for the Kia's avoidance of the jar with the most unrewarding tokens. 
There was a concern by reviewers that maybe the birds were learning within their 20 trials what jar they should have picked from or, you know, which, which hand would have been the rewarding hand. And so what we did is check how they were doing in their very first trial of each condition. And the answer is very well. <laughs> so they were uh, picking right about 70% of the time, if I remember correctly, even considering blocks where they didn't actually get the full block right. So they didn't perform above chance in that block. And the second thing that we did was we correlated performance over time. So we checked whether the birds actually got better and more likely to succeed over the number of trials that we performed. And the answer is no, they don't. So it seems it seems that they're already sort of performing to at ceiling levels or at least not improving due to a learning effect. So that suggests that they are doing that using the actual strategy that we think they are and not just associative learning within the blocks. And then experiment two is the one where they did best in general. That could likely be due to the fact that they had already had a lot of experience with this type of problem by the time they'd finished experiment one. And so it made the whole problem quite a bit more intuitive. So three of the six birds actually fail at the following experiment, the social one. And like that's not entirely surprising because that's a lot more complicated than taking barriers into account. That's taking in social cues from another species into account. And so, yeah, it's not entirely surprising that that's more challenging to the birds than, than experiment two. But they seem to do very well at experiment two. By that point, they had plenty of experience judging probabilities. And they'd also learned for themselves that you can't sample through solid barriers. So, you know, they just had to add these two sources of information together. And they did that really intuitively and very easily. So we wanted to see what which of these signatures Kia would show. And we actually didn't have an expectation that Kia would show all three. We thought they might show the first one potentially one of the other two, but we didn't actually expect them to show all three of them. Amalia and her team's findings showed that Kia can use proportions, and not just raw numbers, to predict where a reward is likely to be found. They also demonstrate that Kia can integrate what they learn about a physical barrier into those predictions. Lastly, they showed that Kia can integrate social knowledge into these predictions. While their paper notes that it's not yet known how infants, apes, and now Kia are able to extract statistical information, Doug and I wondered if she might have any guesses about how this process works. Most of the time when we test animals in cognitive problems, we're asking them very specific questions. So for example, I work with New Caledonian crows as well. We often ask them problems about tool use and, you know, maybe there is a module in the brain that's specifically geared towards tool use and so they're not using a huge number of um, neurons or a huge part of their brain to do this maybe it's just that specific unit of the brain that just serves the function of dealing with tool use so that doesn't say anything about integrating having said that the evidence that we do have from birds that birds might be able to integrate across domains is from non-tool using birds in the wild that use tools in captivity which suggests that this tool use ability doesn't rely on a specific tool brain area because otherwise these birds wouldn't be able to just come up with these these behaviors out of nowhere. They would need that brain area to do that. And because they don't do it in the wild naturally, then you know, it suggests that their brain doesn't have that. But that's 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 not hard evidence. And so we needed to test it, you know, more directly and get the Kia to actually integrate things in ways that we can measure to see if they could actually integrate across different types of intelligence. And so it's slightly complicated in the sense that we don't even know how intelligence evolves. But the one of the theories is that intelligence would evolve in a domain-specific way. And what that means is that the brain would have specific modules to deal with very specific problems um, that it would have faced along its evolutionary line. And that animals would only be able to solve these problems using that particular module, and they're very inflexible. 
that's just, you know, in layman's terms. The other hypothesis is that the brain is actually way more flexible than that. And it evolves in a general way such that if you have one sort of intelligence to solve one sort of problem, as that grows and that evolves, it pulls up other forms of intelligence as well. So you, you end up with a much more complex system that can, you know, communicate across different areas of the brain and so can integrate things. That here can integrate information from different modules suggests domain general intelligence. Amalia and her team's article suggests that there are at least two implications for their findings. First, regarding how intelligence evolves, and second, for creating artificial domain general thought processes. We closed out our conversation by asking her to elaborate on these potential opportunities, as well as the extent to which she may carry out additional research into these matters. You know, the bird brain is the size of a hazelnut. Even in Kia, it's not, not a whole lot bigger than that. But it's got a lot of neurons, so a similar number of neurons as primate brains, but they're very small, very light, very densely structured. And the actual structure of the brain is very different as well. So they have pa a pallium instead of a neocortex, and that means that the entire brain is arranged in a different way. And so far, we've used the mammalian brain, specifically, you know, primate and human brains, to model ourselves on. But these are fairly complicated and very sort of tiered in structure and very compartmentalized. So maybe um, the bird brain would, would be an easier model and maybe a more informative model for systems that can integrate information. Because right now, AI doesn't really have common sense. It just sort of applies the same strategies to all problems and it doesn't do very well with combining information and being flexible just yet. It all needs to be programmed in and even then the flexibility isn't huge. So looking at animals that do have that flexibility could be, could be the way to go in terms of finding inspiration for future models. So I think to me it's very interesting how animals deal with situations that are not only uncertain, but also unusual to their environment, because that tells us about how flexible their intelligence is. And one of the definitions that you might find for intelligence is behavioral flexibility. So how can they um, use the brain that they have and the structure that they have to solve problems that might be slightly outside of their um, usual realm? And so uncertainty sort of plays into that. I had an experiment with the New Caledonian crows that hasn't been finished yet, but hopefully next year, but that's that's basically also about uncertainty. It's an area that I'm very interested in. I'm also very interested in sort of mental representation aspects, which means reasoning about things that you can't directly see, because that's another aspect of uncertainty as well. It's, um, it's just, you know, mentally simulating things and being aware that things exist, but you, you're not certain that they exist. You're just imagining that they do. That was Amalia Bastos discussing her article, Kia Show Three Signatures of Domain General Statistical Inference, which she published along with Alex Taylor on March 3rd, 2020, in the journal Nature Communications. You'll find a link to their paper at parsingscience.org e74, along with transcripts, bonus audio clips, and other material that we discussed during the episode. We often hear from listeners curious about how Doug and I put the show together. So we collected the most frequently asked questions and posted our answers at parsingscience.org FAQ. There you'll find our origin story and information on how we identify and interview potential guests. You can also find out who we have scheduled for upcoming episodes, how to suggest a new guest for the show, and more. Next time, in episode 75 of Parsing Science, we'll talk with Daniel Field from the Department of Earth Sciences at the University of Cambridge. He'll talk with us about his research into a 66.7 million-year-old bird fossil, which mashes up features from chickens, turkeys, and ducks, 
providing the best evidence so far for understanding when groups of modern birds first evolved and began to diverge. You know, all fossils are cool, but to have a chance to actually work on and sort of bring to light this incredible specimen that was exactly what we've been hoping to find for so long is an immense privilege. It was such a surprise to actually find that skull inside the, the block of rock, and I'll, I'll never forget it. We hope that you'll join us again. <laughs>